Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. From a, from a purely historical and sociological perspective, the passage that we read from is absolutely fascinating. Because when you think about it, the Washington Post had an article in April of this year. They estimate there is 2.1 billion Christians around the world. There are 2.1 billion people that call, them followers, call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And we joined them over this weekend in continuing to worship God together. Christianity is still the largest single mainstream religion that the world has seen. And it still continues to be that way today. And it still continues to grow rapidly today. Now, the question is, when we look at this passage, where does Jesus start? With the calling of the four. In fact, he starts with zero. The question is, how, how did Jesus go from hanging out with four guys in the countryside of modern day Israel to 2.1 billion followers? What is it about this religion, so to speak? What is it about this call? Now, when you look at it, you might answer, you might say, is it something supernatural? Yes, it's supernatural, but it's not less than supernatural, but it's certainly more than that. Is it, is it intellectual? Is this a radical idea that changed the world? Yes, of course the gospel is a radical idea that changed the world, but it's so much more than that. Uh, what we see in Christianity is that it's more than just a power. It's more than just a principle. It's a person. Now, Rodney Stark, he was a sociologist and historian. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure Jesus movement became a religious force that changed the world. Stark uh, makes a couple of observations, but what he effectively says is what made Christianity so radical is that in the first century, there are a range of amazing situations that happened. For example, uh, just a hundred years after this passage took place, the plagues of Rome hit and Christians were going into the plagues not only at the risk of their life but the, the cost of their life to love and care for people. Another dynamic happened that in the Roman Empire for the first time in the world ever there were no national borders because the Roman Empire was so big that everyone could live under the peace of Rome and so what it meant is there was a huge amount of multi-ethnicity happening and the church was the first place in which you saw Greeks and Romans getting along together. Uh, that suddenly in a world where all the poor and the weak and the widowed were downtrodden, it was the Christians that said, we've had enough of that. We're not going to put up with that. And as a result, they changed the world. Now, how is that? How did they do that? It's something totally obscure, but hopefully slightly related. I, I refuse to try and make a souffle. I, we tried once and it was an absolute failure. I don't know if there are some chefs here that have had the same process, the same level of failure when it's come to making a souffle, but I'm a greens packet sort of dude. If I want to make a cake, and I just cut the top off the packet, chuck it in the bowl, in the oven, it's done. Uh, but the souffle is just too, way too tricky, all the egg whites and the rest of it. And the big question is, why is it that some chefs can take the egg whites and the sugar and the rest of it and it's the most beautiful, delicate, wonderfully looking, light, fluffy, rising dish and my thing's got a giant sagging hole in it? The question is, is it a matter of ingredients or is it an issue with the methods? When we look at the church like this, I don't think we have an ingredients issue. Because if we look at the early church, we see that the ingredients to Christianity are so absolutely simple. The word of God, 
the Spirit of God and the community of God. And they're the same three ingredients that have changed the world year on year on year after. I don't think we have an ingredients issue. Wouldn't you agree, church? I think we have a method issue. If we're not seeing like in souffle, if, if I have the same ingredients as the master chef and mine's got a hole in it and his is light and fluffy and we've got exactly the same ingredients, it's a method issue. And so church, when we start to ask the question, both personally and corporately, man, why, why am I not seeing the same dynamism? Why am I not seeing the same boldness, the same courage, the same risk that these guys take in my life? Is it an ingredient issue or a method issue? If we see in our church that, yes, we are seeing amazing, thing hap- amazing things happening, if we look broadly at the church and see some churches that are caught up in infighting and they're, they're inner looking at each other and, and they're, they're slowly dying a slow death on a Sunday and then other churches are just bursting forth and doing incredible things for God. Is it an ingredients issue or a method issue? The question is that we've been asking that if Jesus Christ... Managed to change the world from four guys as we see this morning to 2.1 billion people with the same resources that you and I have. What if church, our strategy for changing just crow's nest in the city of Sydney and our strategy for changing the world was the same strategy that Jesus Christ used to change the world? Is it an ingredients issue or a method issue? And so... Over the, these five weeks, we're going to be looking, what, what was the strategy of Jesus Christ? And last week, we had an overview of Jesus' strategy, Jesus' method for making a souffle. And it was really just four core calls, the, the call to come and see, the call to come and follow me, the call to come follow and I'll make you fishes of people, and the call to go and bear fruit. We've represented them as four chairs Four chairs that represent four stages in the Christian life. The lost, the believer, the worker, the disciple. And so as simple as that, that's Jesus' method for changing the world. And so this morning we look at at the first step that Jesus took in order to start a movement that changed the world. The first step was as simple as this. It was come and see. Now, what, what could be a little bit alarming for most of us this morning is that would it surprise you if I told you that, that there, there are some people in, in, who have been hanging out in Northside that are still working out whether or not they want to follow Jesus Christ yet and that they do this process in the strategy of Jesus better than, dare I say, most of us? The dynamic where I've seen in this place people who are still yet to follow Jesus have invited one or two or three or four or five or six friends in to come and be a part of our church community. I don't know about you, but that's, that's sadly more than I have in the last six months. And so what that says to us is that it need not be an overly spiritual issue to be able to minister people in the chair one. It may, it's not necessarily a spiritual issue or an intellectual issue. It's a really simple one, which means this is for all of us. We can all do this. And so what do we see when Jesus starts his strategy with come and see? What we'll look at in this passage this morning is who Jesus goes to in in the chair one. What is a chair one person? What does the process look like of ministering to people in chair one? How do we minister to people in chair one? And why or why not we may not do it in the end if it's that simple? So uh, who does he go to? What does he do? How can we minister? Why should we minister to people in the chair one? Uh, 
chair one. What is, what is chair one? Who are the people that sit in chair one? The people that sit in chair one are the lost. Now, before your mind starts racing, particularly if you're an existing Christian, it goes off into a whole lot of different definitions. Have a look at what happens here, who Jesus goes to. He's walking through the countryside. Zero followers, by the way, at this stage. Not 2.1 billion. Zero. Has to start somewhere. He goes through John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Who does Jesus first go to? Jesus first goes to John the Baptist's disciples. You know what this is? That's, that's sheep stealing. <laughs> that's, he, went, he went and nicked someone else's disciples. It says when John was there with his disciples, and at the end of this passage, it's John's disciples that end up following Jesus. This is a great example for going and bringing all of your friends that go to other churches to Northside. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Now, what is fascinating with that? Who are the disciples? They're John the Baptist's disciples. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are spiritually interested. These are religiously schooled people. Does that challenge your definition of the lost? Because what do we think about when we talk about the lost? Oh, we think the lost are the people that are going to hell or the people that are, uh, that are, uh, are totally rallying against Christianity and the people who've got no idea about God and people who are, whose lives are full of debauchery and could never possibly be a Christian. That's the lost. No. The first thing we learn from this passage is that the lost are not lost causes. It's amazing when you talk to those who are excited with Christianity and they start asking their friends to come and see. They don't see the lost like that. What they see the lost, people in chair one, is people who are yet to be awoken to the realities of who Jesus Christ is. We see this in the disciples. They are religiously trained, but they're yet to awaken to who Jesus is because they have a whole range of of misconceptions about who it is. So who are the lost? How do you define the lost? I define the lost as someone who hasn't transferred their center of gravity to Jesus. You know, it's like leaning back on a chair. You could sort of do that now. Uh, you, have a, you have a center of gravity. There, there comes a point when you lean back on the chair whether uh, you, you're either on this side of the center of gravity or you're on this side. If you lean back, you'd have to trust the person behind you. And so to move from chair one to chair two for a believer is, is this process in chair one where someone who is lost is working out whether or not they're finally going to transfer their center of gravity onto Jesus Christ. Can you see how that works? That, that it's, a, it's a transfer of trust. Now what happens when you are, when you are balancing like this? Re- really, you're starting to wiggle between either ends of the spectrum. You've got a foot in both camps. And don't we see that in our friends who are yet to follow Jesus? There's always a foot in either camp. There's always something that they're trusting on, but they're not trusting in Jesus. So simply, a person who is lost is someone who hasn't trans- transferred their center of gravity to Jesus, but they might be trying it out. Another way that I put it is I, I, I think of the lost as, as not worthless and as not lost courses. I, I call them sleeping beauties. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our transgressions and sin when we are lost. Now that doesn't mean that you're worthless. It means that you're sleeping beauty. She's dead but it's, it's an alive deadness, right? She can't get up off where she's at until, until someone comes in and, and kisses her and, and, and Prince Charming awakens her. The lost are people who, who are yet to have had God or, or, or God through someone come into their life and awaken them. They're certainly not lost causes. 
So it's so important for us to understand that first. That's who Jesus goes to, the lost. They don't understand about him. Now, what does he model for us here? He models this. Initially, if you're in chair one, you're going to have a lot of misconceptions about who Jesus is, and that's okay. You have a lot of questions about Jesus, who Jesus is, and that is okay. What was Jesus' first thing that he says to these boys? He says, come and see. John says, look, there's the Lamb of God. And Jesus says, come and see. Question, why doesn't, why doesn't Jesus just say, yeah, yeah, I'm the Lamb of God. Get with the program. <laughs> why, why doesn't he just affirm the statement that John, yeah, John's exactly right. I think if you listen to what John's saying, he's exactly right. I'm the Lamb of God. Let's go. Why does he say come and see? In fact, why does he just, yeah, why does he not say, well, this is how it is. Why does he say come and see? Francis Bacon, a writer, said, start with certainty and you'll certainly end up with doubts. Start with doubts and you'll almost certainly end up with certainty. And what he means by that is imagine that you're in a classroom and, and you've got the sort of teacher that just rolls out the curriculum to you and says, that's how it is. See you later, class. Go home. Now, what happens? You go out into life and you've been in the classroom and you don't wrestle with it. You don't inquire. You don't think whether this contradicts. You don't think about the world. It doesn't match up. If you go out into life like that, you're going to be at best fragile. Life's going to come along and hit you. You haven't gone out into the world and wrestled it through. You haven't thought it through. Uh, have, by the way, have you ever met Christians who are like that? You know, Christians who have been in the, in the classroom that is the church and they've just accepted doctrine as it's been handed down and it's almost like a church environment that just makes sure that it knows how to tell Christians how it is. Don't question. Is it me or somehow they're the most fragile people in their faith? Jesus doesn't operate his classroom like that. Jesus says in, in his classroom, come see. What he's modelling there is, bring your doubts, bring the things that you are wavering with, bring your questions, bring all the things that you are uncertain about. And that's why his approach is so effective, but it's so important. And here's why. Doubts, doubts are, are always a very real objection that you have, a personal objection. That if you actually come to Jesus and wrestle it out, will help you to understand Christianity better. Jesus understood that, that we all come locked in with our various objections. Look, here's the case study. Look at Nathaniel if you've got your Bible with you. We didn't read this passage. Uh, we stopped at verse 42. But then look at the example of, of Nathaniel where it says here that Philip goes through, and like Andrew and Peter from, was from the town of Bethsaida, so Philip goes and finds Nathanael and he tells him, hey Nathanael, we've found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And then Nathanael says that famous verse, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, I've always read that, that statement from Nathanael, almost as your classic Aussie, sarcastic and blunt. I thought I, we, a lot of us could get on well with Nathaniel. I like his style as a disciple. And I've always read that verse as, as Nathaniel being prejudicial about the geography of Jesus' location. In other words, that Nathaniel's saying, the modern day equivalent of being prejudicial, saying, Penrith, Penrith, can anything good come from Penrith? That would be an incredibly prejudicial statement to make. But he's not doing that. 
And in fact, when, you, when I've read through and looked at what the commentators were saying, it was not so much about geographic prejudice when it came to Nazareth. It's because Philip says, this is the one that Moses wrote about. And as a learned, scholared, lost one, Nathaniel knew the, all the lineage of the Messiah and that he must come from Bethlehem. And so Nathaniel's big question is, hang on, in my head, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem and you're telling me he's from Nazareth? How the heck does that work? And so see, there's a worldview, there's an objection that he has, there's a wavering now, there's something that's been introduced into him as a chair one person, as a lost person, not a lost cause, where this doesn't make sense to him. Now the modern day equivalent, the modern day equivalent, the modern day Nathaniel goes like this, if God is so good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Come, follow Jesus, the saviour of the world that's broken in, that's come here to give you the good life, the real life, so you can live it to, life to the full. The average, the average lost person says, oh, hang on, how can there be a God if all of this stuff's happening around me? What, what are they saying? They're saying, Nazareth, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? A, that's a real objection. That if they wrestle through that, will help them to understand Christianity and themselves better. And so some people are asking, well, how do I know that I'm seeing Jesus clearly? How do I know that I'm a chair one person? How do I know that I'm getting it or my friends are getting it or they're starting to see Jesus? Look, when you come and see Jesus, here's what happens. You start getting moved to either ends of the spectrum of believability. It pushes you to the fringes. Because when you come in and you hear that there is a God and he's in the person of Jesus Christ and he lived and breathed in modern day Israel and he walked and talked with these guys and he was killed and he was buried and he was resurrected and it turned the world upside down, uh, you have to come to understand that that pushes you to the edge of your understanding of reality. But on the other hand, if you don't want to believe that, then you have to believe that these guys were just a bunch of loopy liars of which every single one of them died a torturous death. Except for one, John. Got to hang out in Greece. In a cave. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure if I could go that far for the sake of a lie. And so you push to the edge of believability about what that's... you see how that happens? There's no middle ground. When you start to come and see, it causes a dynamic in there that causes you to doubt. And Jesus says, good, you need to have doubts. You must doubt because you need to wrestle this out because you're not going to know me better. You're not going to know yourself better. You're not going to know the world better unless you wrestle this through in my classroom. So welcome to the classroom, says Jesus. Just come and see. Come and hang out with me, master teacher. So what we see the guys modelling here is, is two crucial steps. Jesus' first disciples were already disciples, which changes our view of who the lost is. The lost are not lost causes. The lost are not inherently evil. The lost are not inherently debaucherous. In fact, they, you can have a lot of religious lost, a lot of Christian lost, because they've been called into something that is not coming to see how Jesus lived, breathed, walked. The other thing it says is it's okay to have doubts, to doubt Jesus and Christianity. Uh, as we get into next week, the issue is not the doubts. The, the question is whether or not you're going to transfer your center of gravity. So, if that's how he starts, somewhere, it shows us that it's simple enough, isn't it? Son of God didn't come down in a fiery cloud, a big nuclear style passing through of power across the countryside he's just walking through 
says to four guys, come and see. That's how he started a movement that changed the world. Is that sounding simple enough to do? It means we can start somewhere in our humanity. Now the question is then, if that's the case, how do we meet the needs of people in chair one? Because remember, if non-Christians can minister to other non-Christians better than most Christians do in chair one, then it has to say to me it's not an ingredients issue, but it's a methods issue. That we actively don't engage the methods that Jesus had to minister to people in chair one. Here's what it is. Simple as this. Come and see is a simple process. How do we minister to them? A simple process of eternal CPR. Eternal CPR. Sleeping beauties. We want to make people... Jesus didn't come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. Old people knew. CPR. A process of cultivating, planting and reaping. Eternal CPR. That's all we're called to do to people in chair one. Cultivating, planting and reaping. The first one, the C, is to cultivate intentional relationships with people who are lost. Cultivate intentional relationships with people that are lost. Uh, The guy across the road is about to re-turf his lawn. I've watched him out there. He He spent like four weeks... Four weeks, uh, poisoning, digging, uh, working everything out. Uh, four weeks in order to put tur- turf's pretty simple stuff to put on the top. <laughs> What's he doing? He's cultivating. And he knows that if you want to sow the right seed, if you want to put uh, have the right foundation, then you need to do the hard work of breaking up the ground. No seed can be sown into the lawn if it's not first been dug up. Cultivating is hard work. It's breaking the hard ground so it can receive the seed. And what that means practically is for you, you cultivate by developing intentional relationships with people in your life that you know doesn't know Jesus. Now the challenge is, particularly in a place where, here's the tension, in a community like Northside where we do community so well as we heard David say and we welcome people in, one of the great challenges that I've found in my life is it is so easy as a Christian to, to lock up every relational space and opportunity that you have in your life with other Christians. Have you ever found that? It happens, it's a good thing, wonderfully organically, but unless we're intentional about our relationships, unless we're intentional about cultivating these relationships, it's quite possible that part of the reason why you and I are struggling to minister to people in chair one and we're not sowing seed is because we're not breaking up ground with people who are yet to receive Jesus. We're not being intentional with our relationships. That's the hardest part of evangelism. You think it's telling someone about Jesus, it's not. It's, it's cultivating the ground to get people ready. P is for planting, just testing. P is for planting God into those relationships. So when you've, when you've cultivated the ground and you've broken things up and you've got these intentional relationships, now planting is simply sowing seed at the right time, at the right place, at the right depth. And that, you've got to learn how to do that. That, that means that people in chair one need people who are specifically prepared to minister to them. What it means practically, it means specifically starting to understand who the chair one people in your life and what are the deep questions and objections that they have to Christianity. What are the things that they wrestle with? What are the things that they are uncertain about? 
What are the things that they want to know more of when it comes to Jesus Christ? So as you come to understand that, then you're going to find in here, have you ever found this, that people in chair one ask you a heck of a lot of questions? And is it just me or is that the scariest part about intentional relationships? Because what do you think? Oh my goodness, what if I don't answer it correctly? Oh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I stuff it up? And that's part of the challenging dynamic. Some people think, well, oh look, we'll just call Sam. <laughs> if I can just get my friend to church, then maybe Sam can answer the questions. And yes, of course, that's a strategy in terms of sowing seed. But God's placed you to do that there. And how do you get good at it? A lot of mucked up question answering. Stuffing it up. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I should have said this and I should have said that and that's it. There goes my friend's eternal destiny and I just wanted him to get Christianity and now if I just... I love that reaffirming verse in John's Gospel where it says the Holy Spirit shows the world where they're missing God. It says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of their sin. I don't, I don't want that to be misinterpreted again as that the lost people are worthless or, or debauched people. What it's saying to us is that God is in control of this process and it's your job just to plant a seed somewhere. (laughs) Sitting with a friend as a thought, I've got to practice the message before I get to Sunday. Sitting with a friend who's a non-Christian on Friday night down at Ventuno at Walsh Bay and and he's, he's in the corporate world and he's working through and we're about 15 minutes into uh, just the levels of anxiety that is just running wild in his life at the moment. And I'm not sure about my business, and I'm not sure about this, and I'm not sure about my girlfriend, I'm not sure about what should be happening here. And I'm just, Sam, do you ever find that you get caught up? And do you ever think these thoughts? And you, do you ever find that they, they never go away and you, you just you can't get them out of your head? And I said, yeah, of course I do. But I said, mate, have, have you ever considered that if maybe... I don't know, this life is not all there is and you know that I'm a pastor so that I actually, the way I quell that voice is I know that there's someone looking out for me and there's a bigger purpose to my life and if this doesn't go right now that God's still going to make things good in the end. I said to him, do you think that could possibly help? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, if it works for you, yeah. (laughs) Now, we weren't having a come to Jesus, sky didn't open type moment but I sowed a seed. I sowed a seed because I start to understand the objections and the way that people are thinking in the corporate world and you you start to become strategic about how you sow. So it's planting at the right time, at the right place. Planting could be as simple as inviting someone to your home for a meal. Something as simple to come and and hang out at Northside. Something as simple as coming to a Bible study. Something as simple as hanging out with your other Christian friends. That's what planting is. Third one, CPR, reaping. Reaping together by presenting the gospel to them. Once you've planted the seeds, there has to become a time in which someone is going to hear this call from Jesus to come follow me and they need to transfer their trust. And so what it means is that you minister to chair one people knowing that you don't intend for them to stay that way. That the progression of the, of the Christian life is to, to move through all four of these phases by Jesus' call and by God's will. But by God's will, we, we all will become chair four people. So what it means is some sow and some reap. We talked about that in our youth ministry. Some sow, some reap. Some sow and reap at exactly the same time. But the point of all of this is that reaping is not an individual. It's actually a corporate process. And here's why. 
You see, if you are a wonderfully great Christian, and there are a lot of you in this place, and you've got a deep steadfastness and holiness and, and, and godliness to you, you know, as an individual, that can be quite off-putting, right? An overly dynamic individual Christian can be quite off-putting, but a dynamic and loving and multi-ethnic and multi-age community that's living with the spirit and, and the bonds of unity together, that just people from all works of life get the getting along? Now that's compelling. So one of the great ways that you reap a harvest is not learning gospel tracts to go and tell your friend over the dinner table. It's as they come exposed to the community of God. Same ingredients, remember? That they start to see that God is alive and at work in a whole range of people. In other words, an individual can argue that Christianity is true, but only the community of God can prove that it works. And isn't that church why always saying the quality of our community will be the secret to our mission? Only until you and I get over ourselves in some of those moments and the things that are not of God and in the bonds of unity show the world that we are radically different from everyone else around us, only then and then only then will it be compelling to your friends and family, my friends and family, that we want to see come into a relationship with Jesus. Another way I'll put it is, it's, it's going to be hard for you to find Jesus unless you've been found by a friend who's already found Jesus. It's going to be hard to find Jesus unless you've already been found by a friend who's already found Jesus. What do the guys do? Philip goes off, it says straight away, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, one of the two that heard what John said who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to go and find his brother Simon and tell him, and it just starts to snowball from there. And then he brought him to Jesus and he has the whole conversation. Then Jesus says to Philip and then Philip, like Andrew and Peter, what's the first thing he does? He goes and finds Nathaniel. It's reaping as a corporate process that we do together, not individualistically. Well, if eternal CPR is that simple in bringing people to life, here's the question. Why don't we see more of it? Now, what happens for you and I in that, this process? Why, why aren't we more intentional? Why aren't we thinking through this more? Why, why aren't we not seeing things just explode? Um, look, there's always a host of legitimate reasons, but when I think about it, it it's really round, down to this question that is deep within you and I and any person that is called to come and see, and it's this. People ask, will this work? I had a conversation with one of our young adult girls who's got a really good friend that is uh, coming and seeing. He's been hanging out with us for, for a number of months here at Northside. And she, she gets so, just so worried and so nervous about, I don't know, I've shown the videos and we've talked stuff through and we've tried some bubble study and I pray and I'm sowing the seeds, but Sam, will, will it work? Will it work? I felt like saying to her, well, Oh, this Sunday, we'll see it started with four, and there's 2.1 billion at the moment. So, I don't know, will it work? <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. Um, it's, like, it's like sitting down with a six-year-old girl and, and saying to her, come on, honey, you know, she's, she's lived by a mud puddle her entire life, and you say, come on, honey, we're going to go to the beach, we're going to go and see the ocean. And she'll say to you, oh, it's, well, the ocean, what's that? 
well, it's, uh, it's kind of like a mud puddle. Oh, it's like a mud puddle. Yeah, there's a lot of water. Like a big mud puddle. Yeah, but it's not the same as a mud puddle because it's more beautiful and it's more wonderful. And yeah, you know what she's going to do? She's going she's, she's gonna to say to you, well, um, if, I, if I go there, can I have more fun there than in my mud puddle? What is happening in that moment? In that moment, there's, there's a total shutting down. There's a total failure of the imagination. And as a result, that failure of the imagination becomes your competition. A total shutting down of the sense that there could be something greater than what she's known. And so what do you say to a kid like that? What do you say after all the arguing, go backwards and forwards? What would you say? You'd say, honey, you've got to come and see. I can't explain it to you. It's not like a mud puddle. It's different. It's the same, but it's different. You just have to come and see the imagination is so truncated that it's, it's shutting everything down. Now, you know, this is exactly what happens right before and right after you become a Christian. Right? The people, I said all the time as a pastor, as they get right to this point, as they're starting to tip the balance, they're right on the edge of transferring their center of gravity. What is the one question? Will this work for me? I don't know, does, does this mean that I have to give up doing whatever I want to do? Does this mean I'm going to have to start giving my money away to people in the church? Does this mean I've got to start serving? Does this mean that I've got to stop sleeping around with whoever I feel like sleeping around with? I, I don't know, am I going to have fun? <laughs> Can you see what they're asking? They're, they're no different from the person, the young girl that's by the mud puddle. Look, millions of people have given their lives away to this guy and have done it in ways that we couldn't dare imagine or hope would happen to us as they've been stretched and torn limb from limb and they managed to still sing a hymn. Where do they get that from? Is it an ingredients issue? Because they, like us, have got the word of God, the spirit of God, they had the community of God. And you and I look into our lives and ask the question, will this, will this work? Will it be worth it? I remember someone thinking that they were going to write a parenting book called How to Parent Your First Child Like the Fifth. If any of you had kids, you know what I'm talking about. You have the first child, they, they so much of sneeze at night and you get ready to call the ambulance. You know, they, they so much uh, rock in their cradle and, and you put all the pillows around them. By the time you get to the second or the ch- third, you hear them clunk against the wall and hit their head. And, oh, yeah, they'll be right. <laughs> Here's the point. You can't parent the first child like the fifth. It'll, the book would never work. You just have to experience it. You have to come and see. Friend, whenever I have a moment and I wonder why... Why is this dynamism? Why is this power? Why is this courage? Why is this boldness? Why is this joy? Why is this not exploding in my life at the moment? I have to be real and say, I'm, I'm no different from the little girl next to the mud puddle. I keep asking myself, will it work? This whole church thing, this whole pastoring thing, this whole journey with this amazing bunch of people on the corner of Oxley Street and Pole Lane. I go asking pastors, I go asking mentors, I go asking everyone else. I'm asking everyone, every wrong person, the wrong question when I should just be asking Jesus. Will it work? And what does he say, son? You can't parent the first like the fifth. You're going to have to come and see. Church, we're going to have to come and see. 
we're going to have to come and see. If God is going to change the city of Sydney, will it work? Of course it'll work. It's not an ingredients issue. You don't need any more ingredients than the early church had to do what they did and turn cities and the world upside down. The real question for you and I is, have we signed off somewhere? Some of us in our Christian journey, and we think that we're chair two or chair three, you know, we're, we're like living verses of that earth, wind and fire song after the love is gone. You know, something happened along the way. Something happened to your friends that you got stung by life or you just grew up and you thought the mud puddle would be good enough. He calls you into something bigger and grander and more exciting. I can't tell you what it's like. He, he can't. My mentors, other pastors can't tell me what it's going to be like. Only Jesus can say, come and see. He started somewhere. And he started simply. Who in your life needs some spiritual CPR? Who do you need to build those intentional relationships with this morning, Christian? That's as simple as that. If you're sitting in chair one this morning, we're glad that you're with us. Just know it's okay to have doubts. You need to wrestle through your doubts. You need to work it all through. But when ultimately there's got to come a point in which your chair just tips over and you don't sit there anymore. The only way that that is going to happen, if you step into the great adventure that is Christianity, you answer the call to come and see. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.